Hello, you magnificent misfits. I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, The Voice of Music, where we dive deep and deconstruct the stories of music artists, industry pros, and others to answer the question, what makes us human? This week's episode is brought to you by The Aux. Now, what is The Aux? The Aux is a compact weekly newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we come across each week. These little nuggets of knowledge, nuggets of coolness, whatever you want to call them, can range anything from art and life hacks to recipes and workout tips. That's right, I'm calling you fat. (laughs) Every week, we discover some information or tools that enhance our lifestyle, and we would love nothing more than to share these things with all of you. Nothing is better than cool shit, especially cool shit that's free, which this newsletter will always be. If you're ready to take your cool to the next level, at least our version of cool, you can subscribe to the newsletter with the link in the description of this podcast or visit auxoro.com slash the aux. That's A-U-X. Now this time, we sat down with the man, the myth, the legend, Justin Fleischer. He is the documentarian for Logic and the creative director of Logic's label, Elysium. And he has done a lot. Justin has been a public school teacher. He shot videos for Iron Solomon, including some in the abandoned tunnels in the West Side Highway. He was the director of visual production at Hot New Hip Hop, and he now works with Logic to create some of the most eye-catching, dynamic, and honest content in the game. On this episode, Justin talks about his decision to leave teaching, shooting the Everybody documentary with Logic, what makes a good director, and more. Even if you aren't a director or content creator, I encourage you to listen to this episode. I believe everyone should have a creative outlet, whether they make a living off of it or not. And Justin takes us through what it's like to be in those beginning stages when you're experimenting, failing, making adjustments, and just trying to find your own lane, trying to find yourself. And Justin would be the first one to tell you that he still endures some of those same cycles even today. So without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Justin Fleischer. I work hard every motherfucking day, yeah, yeah, yeah. I work hard, I work hard. So first, Justin, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to even sit down because I know you're a busy man. And so it does mean a lot that you're taking the time to sit down and have this conversation with us. My pleasure, man. I appreciate you reaching out. I'm excited to um, get into it. Absolutely. And I'm also here with Cam Castles, who is in charge of our hustle operation, which is a lot of the business side of music. We write a lot of stories on things that are going on on the, the business side in terms of management, producers, light technicians, things like that, like anything going on in the business side of the music industry. And, and Cam pretty much handles all of that and is a huge part of Augsoro. And he's going to be joining us for this conversation. Right. This is my first uh, microphone experience. I'm typically behind the keyboard. Oh, cool. I'm just typing shit up, but it's good to sit down with you and I'm happy to take the time. Absolutely. Thanks for Thanks for uh, he's popping the podcast cherry. <laughs> hey, man, it's exciting. <laughs> a little nervous, a little exciting. Yeah, yeah. no, just <laughs> a little nervous is good. That means you're going in the right direction. <laughs> Very cool. So I think a good place 
to start would be the exchange program with the, the Dominican Republic that you participated in in high school. And I was doing a little bit of research and it sounded like this was a program where kids from your high school went to the Dominican Republic, but then also kids from the Dominican Republic came back and went to your high school as well. So it was like a fully fledged exchange program. And it sounded like your school was very involved internationally in that program. Yeah, absolutely. The program that I went on, it had had been started 25 years prior to me going on it. And um, it was started by a Peace Corps volunteer who worked in a town and he formed like a town in the Dominican Republic called San Cristobal. And he created a bunch of relationships over there. And then he kept going back after his, his Peace Corps time. And then he ended up working at our high school and he started the program. And yeah, it was, it was a life changing experience. The reason why, like I uh, told you about it is just because it, it really did sort of change my whole path. I wouldn't even say change. I think it started my path because, you know, in high school, or at least for me, like I had no idea what I was doing or like there were certain things I was drawn to, but it really kind of like opened me up to cultural exchange and just learning about other people and other cultures and experiencing things as, as a, as an other and as someone like different from where I was at. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a really big, big moment for me. So, yeah, I was actually, I was going to ask you about that other feeling because I was listening to another podcast that you're on waste of time podcast. Mm-hmm. And you described that feeling of being the other or for the first time in your life, you were on a bus and, you know, people were looking at you like, you know, what the hell is this kid doing here? And, and you kind of felt like the outsider. Absolutely. Yeah. What was that experience like as the other? And how did that sort of open you up to this new mindset? Like you were saying in high school, like it started a change in you where you were experiencing something else for the first time. Yeah, well, it's just like, I think it comes down to like comfort zone. I come from an extremely homogenous place. You know, we were talking before we started recording about how I'm from New Hampshire. You know, it's an extremely homogenous place. Like almost everybody's like white and um, of a similar uh, socioeconomic class. And like when I went down there, you know, just getting out of my comfort zone, trying to see things from a, another person's perspective, and um, it just shook things up in in a, in a great way for me. And I was just like, it kind of forced me to consider the implications of not growing up with privilege, and and it. I made like a decision after that to like force myself to consider that perspective, you know, and just because I have the privilege doesn't mean I have to constantly like ride with it. Like I can, I, I force myself to consider other people's perspectives and, and approach things like with that in mind. I mean, it sounds pretty vague, but I made a commitment to social justice um, at that time. And, and I went on to teach New York City public schools for four years, uh, actually six years total, but like four years full time. And, and now even what I'm doing now is it's, I, I still maintain that perspective and it affects how, how I do my work just in, in trying to like authentically document people's experiences and, and show that perspective. And you've been to the Dominican Republic twice just for people listening because you went once in high school and then you studied abroad there again for six months when you were going to school at Georgetown before you started teaching. I went there twice formally to study, but I've also been there many times, like um, just 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 to visit that same homestay family that I originally stayed with. 
Like I would go back on vacation just to spend time with them. That's how that's how close we got. Yeah, and it's, it sounds like you still have a a deep connection with the families that you met there and that you stayed with and that you spent all this time here. And coming from the perspective of an American kid and knows has a bunch of friends that go down to the DR on vacation, most of the time they stay on the resorts or they stay on the all-inclusive places where you don't really get a taste of the actual DR. Can you kind of paint a picture of what the environment was like where you were actually staying and what the the real Dominican Republic looks like for people that aren't just going down there and staying at these all-inclusive places? Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's a really magical place. It's, um, well, like the very first thing I'll say um, is that I can't speak like, you know, I, I, I could speak to like the sort of like the cultural trends that I noticed, but like, you know, I'm not going to say that this is going to be what it's like for everybody, but in the town I went to and with the family I stayed in, everyone like was extremely warm and welcoming. And they really did like from, from the first minute I met them, like welcome us in and make us feel at home and um, like family. The food is incredible in my opinion, like the real authentic Dominican food, which is something you're not going to get at the resort. I'm talking about like the home cooked, like rice and beans and chicken and plantains. And it's uh, it's a really delicious cuisine. And beyond that, just the weather's incredible. I mean, you'll get that resort, obviously, but like just the, the general climate, it kind of puts you in a good mood. And there's a feeling of, like an overall feeling of tranquility and happiness, like everywhere, at least for me, this is what I experienced, you know, everywhere I went, it was, it was just like, very relaxing and, and blissful experience every time I would go. And um, in that same town, San Cristobal, there's uh, like a lot of a feeling of community in the sense that people look out for each other. And it's not just like every man for himself. Like in the United States, we have, uh, you know, rugged individualism and like people culturally in a lot of places in the United States, people just keep to themselves and build up, build up their, um, wealth for themselves and for their family maybe but like over there it's like there's a there's a way more of a feeling of community and like helping out your neighbor and helping raise help raise your neighbor's kids too i don't know it's very different very different um and i in in many ways very positive um obviously there are extreme challenges that people in the public face in terms of like resources and there's a lot of poverty and and you know so she's hunger and um but yeah, but people look out for each other and it's this very warm and, and friendly and tranquil environment. That's kind of my overall perception of it. So in staying in DR for a while and coming back, you're from a small town, like you mentioned. Do you think that the experience in the DR helped you kind of adjust and kind of hit the ground running once you did come to New York? Because it is such a different environment here. Zach and I both live in New York City and are from you know similar places that you described where, at least for myself, a very you know, small, white, everyone's kind of the same situation. But then coming to New York City, it's obviously a whole different world here. So do you think that the experience in DR helped you kind of adjust to the culture shock that most people feel when they come to New York? Yeah, I definitely do. it, And uh, it's a great question. Um, yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, there was like a lot of things that happened um, in between as well before I moved to New York, you know, that helped get me ready. But just being in such a, a place of extreme difference, like I said, it sort of shocked me into a new path and also just sort of toughened me up. And I think, I think what it comes, that's sort of what it comes down. It's like, 
you got to build up your character to be ready for a place like New York. Like you can't just go straight from New Hampshire to New yeah. York. Like, yeah, for sure. A lot, a lot did need to happen for me to be ready. And I still don't think I was ready because when I got to New York, I did not thrive. Like I, I started off as a, as a teacher and it was, it was so challenging. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. And I didn't do, I didn't really feel that comfortable. Like at first in New York, I felt extremely like, like alone and like scared, like, like honestly a bit scared. Cause it's just intimidating. Like the sheer quantity of people and you know, how dense it is and crowded. And that being said, and, and it's like, and it's, it's one thing that always fascinated me when I was first starting out there was like how many people there are around you, but how lonely you could feel. Cause I was like living in like a studio apartment in the Bronx and I didn't know anybody up there. I was working in a school right over the bridge in Manhattan, but it was like, it was very isolated in a way, even though there's thousands and thousands of people around me at all times, I felt extremely uh, alone. So it's just like, but I do think the DR did help me, um, but I still, it, it didn't fully prepare me. I don't know if I could have been fully prepared. I think the, the real way to, to get comfortable in New York is to, is to just go through it at first and just get lost on the train and just, you know, have someone yell at you or like, you know, just, you, you got to experience. I heard a story of, a an experience where <laughs> you came across a homeless guy that was shitting in between two parked cars yes. and was locking eyes with you and made eye contact. Yeah, so that's a oh, that's yeah. a great welcome introduction. Like, yeah, yeah, like welcome to New York City. Absolutely, nice man. And that, uh, and that was just one of like dozens of stories like that. Like I'm sure you guys know, living in New York, it's some wild stuff that happens every day. And that's an it's, extreme example, but you're right. There is yeah. a strange sort of dichotomy where. There's so many people around you. There are millions of people packed into this small island, basically. And everyone, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people do keep to themselves. And if you strike a conversation on the subway or you have a moment where you're outside of yourself, you, you might be perceived, perceived by other people as awkward or like, you know, what is this guy right. doing talking to me right now? Exactly. And then you come from a place like the DR where it sounds like everyone is surrounded by more of a community and people are yeah take more a lot of a team openness. building mindset like grandparents yeah. living with their parents and like an entire family yeah. under the same roof it sounds like it's a lot more open and communicative yeah even though there's less people yeah yeah it's interesting man you know what i really loved living in new york though is like those moments where people did break through put their guard down just strangers would just like open up to each other i'm sure you guys have seen it once in a while like where once in a while like a new yorker will just like stop being tough for a second and like strike up a conversation or, you know, give to a homeless person or like, or like help someone out, like crossing the street. Like there's, there's a lot of examples of that too, but it's just well, almost what makes it more special is how, how rare it is. But, but there, it does, it does happen in New York. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I miss New York. Yeah, You a just lot, have man. to keep your eyes peeled for it. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes like you, you pass by tens of thousands of people every day, but then once in a while you'll see that little glimmer of like, people are still nice here and don't have, cold black hearts <laughs> yeah, like yeah exactly yeah 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 like new york's such a beautiful place man i do i, I do miss it a lot like california is really cool and there's like a surface level openness and and warmth out here but it's more surface level it's not like like it kind of feels sometimes like a little superficial the the, the general culture out here of, of warmth is like it's like yeah like hey like i'm nice but like, like i don't know it's different out here i don't know if you experienced Kelly. I haven't been out to California for an extended period of time, but I'm looking forward to going out to LA soon to visit a friend, yeah. actually. 
Sure. But, uh, cool. but going off of that shock of coming to New York and being in that not thriving mindset, but just kind of surviving. Yeah. So you were getting your master's in teaching and, and studying anthropology at Georgetown when you got into the NYC teaching fellows and yeah, exactly. you came here. And I was reading that you were put in charge of a fourth and fifth grade combined bilingual class of 30 plus kids. And yeah, it sounded like you just first. got thrown into the fire right yeah. off the bat. Like not only are you just thrown into New York City, but then you're in charge of the classroom of fourth and fifth grade kids. Yeah. No. How did you handle that at the time? Because that's such a big first responsibility. <laughs> well, I did the best I could. I did. I did. I really did before the serious effort, but it was a pretty impossible scenario. Just in terms, and and like I said, I think on that po- on that podcast, like the majority of my time was just spent on behavior management, like trying to get systems in place and getting the kids to be uh, attentive. And it was it was extremely challenging. I think I I grew a lot from it, but. I don't know how much actual instruction I was able to do, like looking back on it, you know, but um, I no, but I do feel like I did have a positive effect on a lot of the kids' lives. And they had, they certainly did on my life. I could speak to that, you know, just working with them, like getting to know these kids and, and learning about their experiences. And I don't, I don't regret a second of it. Um, it didn't end up being my career path, but it certainly like helped shape like how I am as a person and, and it gave me a lot of skills that I still use to this day um, in terms of how, how to interact with people and organization and discipline. And being a teacher is, 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 can be like going to war, man. It's like, you know, and you can really, it's it, just in the sense of how, just the sheer like intensity of it. And yeah, especially here, man. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, New York's, New York's a different breed, even with the kids. But right. So, I mean, six years is a pretty significant portion of your life. I mean, especially after college, you haven't been out for, for that long, but what, what are one or two things that you think you were able to absorb and take with you after your teaching experience that you wouldn't have had, had you not spent that time with the kids? It sounds like the most basic cliche thing in the world, but just treat people the way you want to be treated. Just be, do the right thing, be a good person. The basic skill of just simply being kind and generous and thoughtful and compassionate is something that I really developed working in the schools um, because there were extremely challenging times and I was tested in terms of how my patients and how kind I could be, but, you know, just, just maintaining that, that basic decency. And and it's, it's taken me a lot way. Like it's taken me a long way. Like after teaching, just because in this industry that I work in now, it's, it's not rare, but it's like not, it's not the norm to be like a good person. And I've, I've been lucky enough to find a camp where, where that is the norm, just on my way to finding this camp, like being being kind and being good and having integrity has has taken me a long way. Uh, that's that's one thing, and then work harder than everyone else is another thing. You know, just the sheer um, just putting in, putting forth effort and having discipline and, and doing so, like setting goals and and working backwards. Oh, backwards planning. That's one thing. It was like one of the most cliche skill sets that they try to instill in us. But it's like with the students and with the curriculum, you, you come up with like the main goals that you want to accomplish by the end and then you plan backwards from them. Again, it sounds super basic, but I, I've carried that skill with me and it was something I had to, I had to develop. 
because I was more I, I was more like one day at a time type of person before I taught, and then like now and now I, I try to incorporate backwards planning. <laughs> I was gonna say that a lot of people may not think of public school teachers as these super creative jobs where you're you're constantly making creative decisions all day, but it sounds like in this job, you had a lot of wiggle room where you had to make decisions, a lot of them probably creative or behavioral decisions where you're trying to get to like where you said that end goal and there's no really set path to how you're going to get a kid to react or how you're going to get them to make a step forward, but you know you need them to get to this point as, a, as an individual and as a class. So it seems like there's a lot of creative crossover between shooting documentaries, being a director, being involved in the music industry, and also kind of uh, like, I'm sure if you take a, a step back and you zoom out and you look at your entire career starting as a teacher, there are some very strong creative through lines from the time when you were a teacher that maybe you didn't even realize existed. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're on to something for sure. And yeah, you, you had to, adapt like that 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 um, necessity um, you know to be flexible and adapt it no matter what your plan was that you came up with you had to be creative in the moment to adapt to what the kids came back at you with and like I've carried that through as well so like you're absolutely right you know with the backwards planning coming up with creative ways to get lessons across but then in the moment having to adapt has it's also been extremely important for me even after teaching for sure And then like, um, but that being said, like I wasn't getting to be creative enough for how I am and how much, like how much creativity is important to me. I, that's why I had to leave. Like, I, I didn't feel like I was like, there's such a script in public school teaching. There's such an absolute script for what you have to teach in order to prepare the kids for the test. I did mention that in the other part in, in the waste of time as well, but it's like, it's so constricting it got me to the point where i was just frustrated by it and i had to i had to stop because i was just like i don't feel like i'm really teaching what were the biggest gaps in creativity that you felt when you were a teacher like the things that you say weren't being fulfilled well i think i think it really had mostly to do with like my aptitude and my passion for for the arts in terms of photography videography drawing sculpture like i'm i i'm I'm a creative in in an artistic sense and and while i was able to be creative in in my lesson planning and and adapting and working with the kids like it's a different type of creative creativity that i was i was missing um which was really you know what i had worked on in college as a arts minor and like just creating something from the ground up in in an artistic sense i really missed that and like when i finally started to get to be able to do that again after college, I mean, after teaching, you know, it felt like I was doing the right thing for myself. Like it, it felt like, uh, you know, like riding a bike, like it was the right move, man. I'll tell you, man, to everybody listening, it takes, it, it took me, you know, six to eight years to figure out what I really wanted to do after college. And that's okay. You know, you got You got to try all kinds of different stuff. Everyone learns at a different pace, like what, what they're supposed to be doing. And, yeah, like don't don't beat yourself up if you don't know exactly what you're doing. If you don't know exactly what you should be doing, you know, give yourself the chance to fail. Give yourself the chance um, to try different things. It's it. Everyone's gonna figure it out at their own pace. That's a huge piece of wisdom that you know I, 
I, I, I feel has really helped me out a lot. It's like, give yourself the chance to fail. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. And me and Cam are both two, three years out of college. So I think we're both embracing the experimental phase right now. Yeah. Embrace it guys. <laughs> we don't really know where we're going to end up, you know, 10 years from now, but that's exciting. And it's, uh, it can be hard when a lot of your friends are already set deep in their, their career paths, which as you know, cause, uh, and I'll get into how you left teaching when you were 26, but I don't think people experiment enough early on, especially having had some conversations with people that are much older than me that they wish they experimented with their career paths earlier on in their 20s, in their early 20s, especially, because that's the time where you have the least amount of responsibility. You may or may not be in a relationship. You don't have a family. You don't have kids. Like You, you can afford to take risks much more than yes. you can for most people later in life. So that early Absolutely. period right out of college is so important for me to just like take risks and see what shit works and what shit doesn't. The only thing I would recommend is like just stay active. No matter what you're doing, do something. Just so mm-hmm. you like, especially in your early twenties, just yeah, basically just stay active. Like go out and try different things. Say yes to everything, type of thing. You know, well you still can. <laughs> yeah, I sound like an old ass man, like talking about like <laughs> youngins go out there. <laughs> yeah, try it out. you you young blood stay active out there. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so, going back to that moment where you left teaching so it wasn't it it wasn't a single moment but a period in your life where i'm i'm guessing that you were considering other options and i know in the past you said you may have felt jaded towards teaching towards the end of your teaching career not that you're not teaching now but in the in the public school sense you felt a little bit jaded and then you ended up coming to the decision to leave teaching at 26 years old and you actually turned down the position to work as a dean for 75k a year instead you chose not to do that and work for Iron Solomon for people who don't know he's a rapper and songwriter from MIC he's known for iconic rap battles with people like Rum Nitty, Immaculate, Murder Mook and you chose to not go for the security of the week to week paycheck, but instead do something that's paying much less and rewarding you on a per project basis is what it sounded like. Before you even made that decision, what was your thinking process like? It's your your self-thought process when you were weighing the pros and cons of, okay, I have this fork in the road, which looking back on it is probably, it, it sounds like one of the most influential decisions to your life up to that point what was your thinking process like when you were getting ready to pull the trigger and leave teaching how did you come to that oh man well it was as you pointed to it certainly was the hard, like one of the most one of the biggest crossroads moments of my life and it was the hardest decision i had to make because i did have a job offer on the table i had two job offers on the table um as you pointed to like one being extremely stable and the other one being completely open-ended and, and not, like not stable. What really helped me out was the faith that I had in my collaborators. So I, both Iron Solomon and one of my best friends and like closest uh, work partners, Isaiah, so who is 
that's my connection to Iron Solomon. Isaiah and Iron Solomon had gone to college together and I had gone to high school with Isaiah up in Massachusetts. So the point is, Isaiah is the one who sort of like presented me with that, that other path and led me to Iron Solomon. And I had so much faith in him as an artist and as a person that I was, I was like, I think I'm going to be all right. Like, it's probably going to be tough, but I, you know, just working with him and also having faith in myself and knowing that, you know, I have skills in, in create, you know, creative skills. And even though at the time, like I wasn't even supposed to be working on creative, I was going to be helping them with the business side of things, but just being around the creativity was exciting to me. And I thought I could thrive in that environment because I had, I was such a fan of music and I had worked in art, like worked on, on art related things in the past. So I was like, and I was just inspired by by what they were doing, and I, I wanted to be a part of it. And I took the the leap of faith. You know, I took a jump uh, off the cliff, and, and you know, without really knowing if I had to shoot. You know what I mean? So, but it was, it, yeah, like you said, it ended up being the right move. But at the time, I had no idea. Were there any sort of decision making processes or or techniques that you use that help, like journaling <laughs> or making a pros and cons list or? Like Sorry talking. to laugh. Yeah, no, I'm laughing because I like I'm thinking back to like this like epic email I wrote to like my family, like the close like inner circle family, like my mom, dad, sister, and like my brother in law. I like wrote them like an email where I basically try I like laid it all out for them. And I was like I, at the end, I was like, "What do you think I should do?" But I was basically the whole email was framed towards. Get, like convincing them that this was okay, even though they had like helped me pay for college and helped me, you know, it was very expensive college. And like I got scholarships and financial aid and everything, but my parents put a lot toward that. So like for them to hear that I was going to leave that degree behind and like that path behind and like try something completely different, couldn't have been easy to digest on their end. But like this email was so epically framed that like they weren't happy about it. But <clears throat> I think writing like, Writing that email and just writing in general is a way that I go through decision making. You mentioned journaling; it's so, it was yeah. sort of like that, you know, writing it all out, like writing out the pros and the cons. And a little bit later, at like this sort of life coaching seminar I went to, I learned that like declaring something and then coming up with actions that you can take towards that goal, like backwards planning again, it, it can be very effective. Um, just like putting it out there, you know, speaking it into existence. That's sort of one of the ways that I get through tough decisions. Um, figuring out what you really want and then just going after it. There definitely is something to writing it down or speaking it into existence, like you were saying, because it just makes it more real. And it's almost like, uh, like recently I started basically just putting a stopwatch on the table for 10 minutes at the end of the day. And then I have a blank journal where I'll write my thoughts, something that comes to mind at the end of the day. Sometimes I'll write like two pages. Other times I'll write a line or two, but I just try to clear my head for 10 minutes. And it's amazing how many things will come up in your mind. And when you write them down, it's not like you're realizing how you felt, but it's basically reaffirming that this is important because it's coming to mind right now. And when you write it down, it, it's like you can't escape from it because you can't really, it's not like you could trick yourself into thinking, all right, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Or I don't want to make this decision. I'm going to write it down and recognize that it's how I'm feeling right now. So I definitely get that aspect of journaling. Yeah, kind of like a fish, it makes it more official. Like 
it's written down. It's, it's like, it's out there. It's, like, it's like, if you yeah. don't do it, you're going to go against yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of like one of the ways I got through it. And then beyond that, it was just like a lot of just reflection, you know? And, How did your and, parents and, react? Man, my parents were, were not happy about it, but they also were extremely supportive. Um, my parents are incredible. They, they've been extremely, you want to talk about adapting. Like they, they've been extremely flexible with like all these curveballs I've thrown at them and all these wild turns I've taken. But just thinking back to that particular moment, it was, I did get a lot of like, I did get a lot of, um, what, what, how do you call it? Like, you know, clap back, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Are you, like, are you serious? Like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. This is like this is like because this this other position it had like not only the salary was decent seventy five you know and this was when I had very limited expenses beyond rent and then they were also like it had benefits that's that was big for them health insurance four, yeah. yeah and like a retirement fund I had start I'd already been in the system for like, the school system for like six years so I was accruing like retirement money and like I was like really on that real like classic you know a meritocracy you know American dream path of because my both my parents come from immigrant families you know my mom being from italy my dad's family being from holocaust survivors from austria so like a, a lot of times in immigrant families they won't you know it's important that we you know we work towards you know improving our situations and stability so it's even bigger for them i think they want us to like you know go on to do great things and and in their mind, this was not a great thing. This was not. This was not going to be a short, sure path. Since then, I've proven that I, you know, I've I, I've persevered through it and made it a, a viable path. But it took many, many years, man. And I'm definitely not even there yet. But I'm. But now they could see that there is a path. You know, like a at least like while while I'm not like good right now, comfortable and perfect. Like there's still a lot of challenges. It's like. They could see that in the past seven years working in music industry, they've seen that like I've carved at least a trajectory for myself. You know what I mean? So there is there is hope, and now they're more at peace. But at, then when when I was first making that transition, it was like, "What are you doing, bro?" <laughs> was there a project or a, something you accomplished that started change the tide for them, where they finally started to believe that maybe you did make the right choice for you? Man, great question. This is some good questions. That was Cam, right, man? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Solid, <laughs> you, man. No, I was gonna say like, okay, well, when I first left each I was working with Iris Solomon. They were like, they were seeing the things I was doing. They were like watching, and it was it looked pretty cool to them, but it was like still terrifying in terms of uh, compensation and everything. And then started doing all these like, man, I'm trying to go back like backwards, trace everything. Um, I would say probably when I got this internship with Creative Control and then that internships turned into a position where I was getting like a decent little stipend every month. They were like, okay, this this is a this could be lucrative because Creative Control was when they and Creative Control partnered with Echo, Mark Echo's uh clothing brand, which was trying to make this resurgence at the time. And Creative Control was partners in uh, Joey Bad and managing Joey Badass. So it was like Creative Control, Joey Badass, Echo, and we were Smokers Club. We were all working together, and I was doing visual content for all, you know, all four brands. And they were giving me like a monthly uh, stipend. And and when I had told my parents about that, they were like, "Okay, okay." But then just recently, 
Uh, so that was like one little like moment that was like seemed exciting to them, I think. And then recently, like a couple of years, I want to say like a year and a half ago, you know, I started working on a documentary for Logic. And yeah, I mean, there've been a lot of little moments. I, I've kept them, you know, in the loop on everything. And I don't think it was one, I don't think it was like a moment though. It wasn't like, it was more of a gradual sort of realization that it's working out. I, I will actually would love to ask them that question. And I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question so I could ask them, like, if there ever was a moment. Yes. Hey, mom and dad, when did you realize that <laughs> I wasn't going to be a failure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I no, need to ask my parents the same question. Maybe it'll yeah. be like, I, I, you're still not there yet. Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nah, we're still man. worried about you. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay, too, though, man. It's, we're... It's going to be great, man. I can already tell you guys got solid heads on your shoulders. So you mentioned, uh, obviously, the creative control position gave your parents confidence in the path that you're pursuing. What was the first moment or, or standout experience for you with Iron Solomon that reaffirmed that you had made the right choice? Because I'm sure before that, there's a healthy amount of self-doubt that crept into your mind right after you chose to leave teaching where you're like, Oh fuck. Like, I don't know. Like, we'll see. And then was there one moment where you were, you could be directing, creating content, editing something, just like experience on a set where something clicked and you're like, all right, like I made the right decision. Uh, yeah, no. What Zach, like, honestly, it's been a roller coaster. It's, it's again with the cliches, but like, It'll be like moments like that where you're just like, yes, I am doing the right thing. Like, uh, like I'm in the moment. I'm thriving. Like, um, is there anything that sticks out? Once I was shooting a music video underneath the West Side Highway in these for the Freedom Tunnels. It's like one of my favorite sets. We broke into it. It's not an actual set. Like, it's it's an illegal place to be. <laughs> like, but like we were down there, just incredible lighting, really ominous space. Like tall ceiling and Amtrak trains going by in the adjacent tunnel. And it's like, it's a really uh, spooky place to be. And I, I was shooting down there. I was like, this is cool. Like this is guerrilla style. This feels good. I'm getting great content. That felt really good. That was like a cool moment for me. But the reason why I bring up the roller coaster thing is because it's like, there'll be moments like that. I'm like, this is so fun. Like I'm in the moment. I'm loving it. This is, this is my passion. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And then it was like the next month of like, it, back then it was like, like, how am I going to get this rent? You know, like, so it would just go, it'd be like ups and downs like that. And then even still, like now I'm on like a much more, a much better situation, but it'll just be like, there's always going to be self-doubt, but certainly the moments where it's like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing offset that. And I know I'm being vague here, but like, I'm trying to think back to like specific, uh, other specific moments. There was one time where, you know, Logic had us do a Q and A. Um, at the debut of our documentary. So we, we got to show our documentary at the Wiltern Theater in LA and take some questions afterwards. That felt really good to be validated and have the, the documentary displayed at a place like that in front of such a crazy crowd that was so happy to see us. And it was like, that was a really cool moment. Um, I never had like anything I've done on a big screen before. So that was huge. You know what's really cool too is when you end up traveling to really crazy places because of your job. That feels really good. Like we got to go to Tokyo and Japan. I'm sorry, Tokyo and and Maui and on one trip, like filming 
for logic. And it was just like, when you like wake up and you're like in Japan because of your job, that feels really like you're doing the right thing. And like, you know, someone paid for your plane ticket to be there and like you're working on this important project that feels really good. Yeah. I mean, now with what I'm doing, like I've changed my, my role has changed so much. And anytime something goes well with what I'm doing now, it's like a new feeling that I haven't experienced before. Cause normally I was working mostly in photo and video and like creating assets for artists in that realm. And now I'm like back to like the almost more managerial creative director, like big picture business move kind of role, helping with Elysium, which is the, the label that Logic started. And anytime I'm able to get like an artist to access their budget and book studio time or like get approved for a, a marketing plan or stuff like that, it's like, it's this new feeling of like success that I hadn't experienced. There's something about the novelty of it too that, that feels really good. And I feel like I've might have digressed a lot. I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> but so you definitely had, you know, throughout this whole journey, it's a it's a roller coaster. So there's obviously a lot of ups, but there's downs as well. So when you have those, you know, a project might not turn out how you want, or you're struggling with, you know, putting something together and you're in one of those low moments, what's your process like to continue through and you know keep on the path that you want to be on and not get stuck in that rut or you know, negative feeling that you're in? It's really tough. Like, and do you have an example of like a project or something that you know you just felt like you were beating your head against the wall, and you know how you how you got through that? Yeah, I mean, back when I was freelancing, there would be like gaps between. You know, there's certain times where the industry just sort of naturally shuts down, like after like leading up to Christmas, and then all the way yeah, through the winter like, time. Yeah, it can get really cold and dark and and quiet. Phone stops ringing, people are home for the holidays, and it's like. Yeah, but I don't have a check coming in and I hadn't planned for this. I hadn't saved for this. And the first, my first inclination is usually to just dive into the, <laughs> into the lull and like, and just give myself like a few days to just like get like hit rock bottom. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is kind of depressing, but like this is usually my, this was my approach. I would just like kind of just, and then get to the point where I was like, okay, I need to get outside. I need to get some air, some light. I need to get a chemical change to my brain, literally get some oxygen and some vitamin D. That's important. Start eating healthy again, get back on the phones. My number one most important thing is my relationships, my connections, and my authentic connections, not just like industry contacts. I'm talking about like people that I know that I trust, talk to them, sort through it, tell them what my situation is, what I'm trying to do, what do they have going on? Like, I'll reach out to like my, my, as cliche as it is network, you know, and like really just hit up my, my real circle and, and see what's going on. This was when I was freelancing and then find some, a project to dive into. But man, the first step is really just getting up and getting out. You just got, you can't, you can't get stuck. You can't get stuck. You got, you got to keep moving. You got to keep moving. It's, it's tempting to just binge watch and, stay in the dark and self-pity yeah it's like a distraction yeah yeah yeah. no trust me man i know how comfortable that can be as depressing it is it's like something so comforting about just like diving into the darkness and like (laughs) watching netflix for 12 hours and feeling yeah just in bed yeah and hibernate and like like i said i would allow myself to do that for a little bit but as long as you you just can't get stuck there you got you gotta like kick yeah i I feel like those moments are 
okay from time to time, as long as yeah. you're real with yourself about, okay, I'm going to binge watch Netflix or, you know, like drink an entire bottle of wine myself. Yeah. And I, I realize that I'm escaping something right now. Not like you're doing, you're, you're in that depressed mindset. You're in that dark mindset, but you're tricking yourself into thinking that everything's okay. Cause I think that's how people get stuck there. As long as you are real with yourself and recognizing the moment, like, okay, this is me taking a step back and me escaping. This isn't where I need to be to accomplish what I'm doing. But right now I'm just going to put all that to the side. And I feel like just recognizing that in the moment is a bridge for you to get back into that normal routine. Yeah. And setting like a nice. firm end date to that too. Right. Like give yourself right. two days and then that's it. Move on from there. Yeah. And I think you guys are both right on that. Like, I, I think there's a really good insight on it. And like, also for me, it was like, there was usually something like as little as it was, there was usually something that was like a couple of days later on. Like there was like, like, even if it's like a doctor's appointment or like a friend that like reached out and wants to like get something like a coffee or something. It's like, say yes to anything and everything that's going to get you out of the house yeah. <laughs> at that, at that time. That was how, that was how I had. Going off of those real, you were talking about making real connections. And uh, that made me think of, I don't know if you listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast, but he basically interviews people that are at the top of their field, whatever it is. It could be music, it could be technology, it could be fashion, anything. And one of the constants that that he brings out in some of those top performers in their field is that they always value the real connection, like the hard connection to their customers, whatever it is that they're doing. And they all seem to have this servant mindset to where they're thinking like not what not what can i get from you like when they reach out to people it's not like i need this it's like what can i do for you how can i serve you Mm -hmm. and then we'll figure out a way to use each other's like use each other's connection to make something great no that's such a great point too it's like we get so self-absorbed at those moments like of darkness and like self-doubt stuff that it's like oh like like you said like self-pity and all that but like Thinking about what you could do for someone else is a great way to, and then also just in general with your connections, you're right. Like that, that sort of like other mindedness where it's just like, you ultimately want to get to something that's mutually beneficial with your connection, right? So in order to do that, you have to, you have to be offering something that's going to benefit them and then, and then it'll come back around. But you know what I also do is like, is like, I'll, I'll do things like connect people like with zero incentive for myself. Just literally, just to get that car, that like I'll just do it, at, like just purely because I want these people to make something great together, like a, a manager and an artist, or like a publicist and an artist, or you know, like a producer and a and a rapper. Like I, I just love connecting people, and like people, some people will pursue like finders fees or like points in the project or something like that, and like I've never gone after anything like that because it's just like honestly love just connecting people so i hear what you're talking about obviously you want to be a smart business person too like but these are all people i actually genuinely fuck with and i want them to do well so like i try to just give a lot you know and it makes you feel yeah. better too when you're doing something just for the sake of making a connection for someone else even if right. there's no benefit for you in the short term long term who knows like maybe yeah that'll, you'll end up working with that person down the line but just wanting to see other people succeed also has that kickback effect that gives you a boost as well yeah absolutely absolutely so going back to the some of those 
dark places and uh we we're talking about like binging netflix drinking bottle of wine you didn't say that i said that <laughs> um, <laughs> no but i did that too so yeah we, alone. we've all uh, we've all had those moments so after you were working with iron solomon and, and you had a bunch of freelance projects and you had the creative control position you were working as the director of visual production in new york city at hot new hip-hop and you describe it as more of like the the nine to five office job, but you were also shooting mm-hmm. music videos. You were conducting the interviews, honing your interview skills, and then you get let go essentially from hot new hip hop. Yeah, no, nah, yeah. That's and you told the story yeah. about how you had twenty four hours with your hot <laughs> new hip hop email before it got Correct. deactivated, and you sent out four hundred, five hundred emails to connections. And one of those connections was Harry Rem- Harry Remler, Har- Harrison Remler, one of Logic's managers yep. at Visionary Music Group. And he gets back to you and says, basically, do you want to go on tour with Logic? That yes. must be yes. an insane feeling. And, and just like in, in, in your mind, I guess you weren't expecting that to come back as quickly as you thought. But because it's such a quick turnaround from getting let go by hot new hip hop. And then all of a sudden you have Logic's manager saying, you know, like, let's go on tour. It was insane, man. It, it felt like a movie, you know? That being said, there had been months leading up to that where I was already, like, plotting my Like scheming my be- behind the scenes? <laughs> kind of scheme. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of well, just sort to. of like... You, get, you always got to, like, yeah, be and, looking for the next move. Yeah, and, like, it was just that that sort of office environment. It's no knock on hot new hip hop, but it's like the office environment. It wasn't, it was like, a, it was like in the realm that I want to be in, but it wasn't like the exact sort of path I was trying to take. And I felt like I was doing good work and uh, I enjoyed it and stuff, but it was like, I did again, feel kind of constricted, similar to how I felt back at the schools, working in the schools in a similar way. It was like, I had to be there at like nine. I had to, you know, I had to, um, I had like a half an hour for lunch. Like it felt like that's and uh, like not to sound like spoiled, but I was just like, I want to be out and moving and like a little bit more autonomous, you know? So I had already been considering. And so when, when I found out I was being let go, my initial reaction was a sort of relief and like, okay, cool. So like now I get to, you know, see if I can make it as a freelancer. And then when the email from Harry came, it was like the idea of touring, not only just with logic, but just touring in general, just getting out and traveling like every day in the new city and and getting new shoots, like different types of stuff from what I had been shooting. And, and then, yeah, I really did mess with logic. Like I had met him a couple of times before that, um, working at Hot New Hip Hop. And, and he'd always struck me as like almost uniquely warm person, especially for being a rapper, because most rappers are really cool and I like them, but it's like, he had this like spirit about him of like, like a genuine dude, like, and a compassionate dude. And like, so I had to just hit Harrison back and say, yeah, like I remember I said earlier, just say yes to everything. Like in this situation, it was, a, it was a no brainer. I was like, I was just like, yep, let's do this. I was like, just make sure you hit me um, with the details at my new email address. <laughs> I didn't, didn't want to get lost in that. Um, yeah. Shuffle there. <laughs> but yeah. So then l- literally that same month, Probably about twenty five days later, I I hit the road and haven't I haven't turned back since. I even moved out to California because of it. Yeah, it's, it's a good crazy, thing you man. didn't start watching Netflix too early when you got let go from nah. hip hop, or you wouldn't have had that email. 
<laughs> I think I also had the benefit of it literally being like the first of the year. You know how like a lot, I don't know about you guys, but like with me, when it's like January 1st, it's like first start. And I was like, all right, yeah, this right. Is a, if I have to be let go, it's a decent time to do it. It's like, but let me, um, Clean break. Let me, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have a, a quote here from you describing part of that transition and it's about logic's team. And you say that it was a seamless transition, felt natural, a rare group, and that you never encountered a team and artists that was so professional, respectful, and cool to be around, which sounds like a lot of what you were just describing. Is there a moment that embodies that quote or feeling when you first went out to Burbank and started working with Logic team, Logic's team, where you you felt like you were at home and, and everything's clicking. It's a, a specific moment where it kind of hit you like, okay, like these guys are different. Yeah. I mean, the first couple rehearsals, there was like, there was a little bit of like, a oh, we're testing you sort of vibe where it, was, it wasn't immediate, like warmth and welcome. Like it, it, but it wasn't like anything in the opposite of that either. It was somewhere in between. It was like, all right, you know, I was just doing my thing, shooting. Logic even said to me like, uh, he was like, you know, like, just so you know, like, I still kind of see you as part of the press because he had known me from Hot New Hip Hop. So I was like, I appreciate your transparency. Like, I work for you now. I'm not the press, just so you know. So like, that was like an interesting little exchange. And then as the tour progressed, it was more of a gradual thing. I don't know if it was a moment, but there was like, um, on my birthday, they did like throw a cake in my face on the stage. And they've done that every year. Yeah, they've done that every year since. Yeah, yeah. And they've done that every year since too. This is like I, I now like last like this last summer, it was so funny, like they had the cake right in front of me and I knew it was gonna go into my face. And they, they knew that I knew, so they came up behind me with a, a separate cake <laughs> and hit me before I expected it. So wow. that was pretty good. But anyway, on this first oh and actually not, because the first tour was February, March of back okay, February, March of two thousand sixteen. It was the second tour that year when I got the first cake in my face. But on that first tour, man, it was like, it was two months. It was cold and like, it was, it was, we were going through, you know, like Minneapolis in the middle of the winter and stuff. And we just bonded as a group. And there were a few other guys who were new to the camp too. And they're still around too, like Jordan, security guard, Ricky was doing. Anyway, the point is like, I'm, I can't point to one moment, but it was a gradual bonding of a family and, the group chat helped too. There's like tons of wild memes being thrown around, just roasting each other. I can tell you a moment that you described that hit home for me. And it's because mm-hmm. part of my college baseball experience that we were talking about before we actually started recording. But you said that when you were talking to Harry about what you would need for the tour bus and the whole experience, he told you to bring a lot oh, of socks yeah. and no shitting on the bus. Which is basically what Absolutely. a college baseball coach <laughs> says to all their players: bring a lot of socks. Here's what you need. Absolutely no shitting on the bus. Like literally, no, we'll stop huge. and you can go take a shit on the side of the highway. <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, no, because they're not built for that. Those buses, yeah. they're not built for that. <laughs> yeah, we've had, man, we've that, had that, some that, people try to sneak them out, like, and then they they come out, like you see the look on their faces, and you're just like, dude, you just took a shit on the fucking bus. Yeah, like, what terrible. The fuck? terrible it's the shame <laughs> yeah no i never i never even i would i mean there have been some close calls but man you just got to top you don't want to be that guy you don't want to be that guy <laughs> yeah 
But yeah, hearing hearing that from the tour manager, I was like, oh, okay, is this guy going to be strict? And he turned out to be, he is strict, but he's like the best mom. He, that's what we call him, mom. <laughs> His name, his name is Momberg, and like we call him Mom, and he's he's the tour manager to uh, this day, and he's incredible. So you speak a little bit about uh, filming webisodes when you first got onto tour. Like it kind of sounded like these behind the scenes moments, and that that weren't necessarily on stage, but it could be on the tour bus or backstage at a concert, or just like these little insights into Logic's life things that a fan normally doesn't get to see. How do you balance the behind the scenes aspect of putting a camera in someone's face or around someone, but then also letting an artist have their moment to themselves? Because I'm sure for your end, there has to be some sort of line where you're thinking like, am I, you know, am I filming too much? Like, am I, am I too close right now? Do I need to back off? How do you sort of navigate that line when you're trying to create? content especially the behind the scenes content first of all there is no like scientific formula for how to properly do that it is it's an art not more way more than a science you gotta like use your spider sense you gotta like feel it out like my my general approach is to be as 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 much in your face while still being the fly on the wall it's like this weird in between you know I would say that I would, especially at the beginning, I would I would um, go more for the like, what's the word? What's the expression about like request permission? Then that's better to ask forgiveness. Uh, yeah, it's better don't to ask, ask don't for tell. forgiveness. Than to, <laughs> no, it's, like, it's better. It's better. It's better to requ- to ask for forgiveness than to request permission. So like, I would I would kind of push it, you know, to to try to make sure I was getting the best content. Since then, there's just like unspoken cues that let you know like how oh, you got to chill you know so so since then i picked up on more and more of those and we're doing less and less behind the scenes just because the nature of logic's career and the way he wants to brand himself now is a little bit different than when, when i was starting out with him and, and logic's someone that i think he talks a lot about his anxieties and and having issues with that and i, I feel like it'd be a tough position for you dealing with someone on a day-to-day basis while trying to get these personal moments while they're dealing logic's dealing with you know, these anxieties and pressures of the tour. So I imagine that that type of balance of figuring out when he's okay and when he's going to, you know, snap at you and tell you to get the camera the fuck out of his face was probably something that you had to adjust and learn for. Yeah, no, definitely. And the other thing is, Logic's very unique in that he was always trying to help other people. And one of the ways he would do that is when sometimes when he would be having the worst anxiety, he would literally actually pull me to the side and asked me to record him. And he would, he would say to everyone, like, I want you to record this moment right now because I'm going through extreme anxiety. This is what's going through my head. You know, I don't want to be doing this right now. I don't want to be here. And like, he would open up like that was, those were some of the most interesting moments I've ever. That's how the Rapture, the Rapture Netflix documentary started, I believe, right. Where he just kind of goes through how he has a million different things on his plate and has to deal with publicists and managers and, all these different things. And he's verbally going through what's, what's in his head anxiety wise. And it's a really, it, it is a very interesting and unique way that he kind of opens up about having these mental struggles. So it's, it, I'm sure it's fascinating to see him verbalize that for you on camera. Yeah. And it's also, it's also very challenging because he, he's become my friend. So to, to not only have to, to think about work at that time and like making sure I'm getting the shot right, 
but also have want, like feeling for my friend and wanting to help him. You know, it's like it's this weird balance as well. You know, so it's not like I'm like, yes, this is the gold content. You know, like we're we're getting like the best stuff. It's like, damn, this is this is powerful stuff. But also, I hope he's all right. You know, like you know, but but like we were talking about with writing down things that we're stre- we're we're reflecting about. You know, for him, like talking in front of the camera, I think was in some ways therapeutic. Also, performing for his fans was therapeutic for him. At those times, I, I've seen him go through it and like. Yeah, so it's like different people deal with their stuff different ways, and I think the way he he dealt with it and like ended up being a way that that actually opened himself up and, and hopefully helped other people too, which is pretty powerful. That's crazy that he's inviting the camera in at those moments of vulnerability and the moments of most uncomfortability yeah. because I'm sure other artists, you know, might be like, you know, get that camera out of here, like I don't want to do this shit right now, and. The fact that he was inviting people into his life to see that, that, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people are going to see and he doesn't know what's going to happen. You can freak out on camera. Like when you're anxious, it's very hard to control uh, your mental and, and physical processes because things aren't functioning normally. And he's just inviting the display, the public display into a life, into a light where people are usually at their most private. Exactly. It's pretty, pretty um, unique, pretty powerful yeah. stuff. Still on the logic thing, but um, so working with that, the Everybody documentary, um, one of the unique parts about that album is the involvement of Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he is obviously a really prominent person in kind of all of media now. He's kind of branched out just outside of the science realm. Did you have any interaction with him in terms of filming or the making of that album? And what if you did, what was that like? Man, I wish I was not. No, nah, I was not on that trip to New York when they um recorded with him. Um, I did. I have met and even gotten pretty close with his nephew, Steve Tyson, <laughs> who was actually the connect that linked Logic and and Neil together. He's a really nice, nice kid, killing it out in Philly. Uh, really good dude. He raps. He and I think he even like teaches a. I think he even works in a school over there. I'm not sure, but he's really great dude. Yeah, that's as close as I've gotten to Neil deGrasse Tyson. But I definitely watched the show, you know, the Cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got that voice yeah. too. <laughs> oh man, incredible! You got to watch the Key and Peele skit with Neil deGrasse Tyson too, if you haven't seen oh, that. Oh wow, I definitely will. That sounds amazing. It's hilarious. I'll uh, I'll send you the link <laughs> once we're yeah, done. Yeah, please this. do. I was I was just starting to Google it, so definitely link link. <laughs> so going off of the everybody documentary, you were essentially living with Logic for two months, right? During the filming. Yeah. And the documentary is 47 minutes long. And so you have hundreds of hours of video that you have to make creative decisions on and compress into 47 minutes. And I know you also talked about making a version that was even shorter than that, too. What are some of the things that you look for in this footage? It could be the vibe or attitude, things that people are saying, this things that are going on cinematically that allow you to say, all right, this needs to be in there. Like this tells a story. This doesn't really fit. What are some of those creative processes like when you're trying to narrow down this mountain of footage into a digestible documentary form? The Everybody documentary was the first time I ever had to deal with something of this length. So I learned as I went. Like, I, I, I don't know if there's like a textbook about it, but I didn't read it, you know? So 
what I was doing was I was going through every single second of video that I captured and I was organizing it by um, topic. So I would put a little keyword if it was about a particular song or or topic. And then after I did that, like I would just, I just tried to sort of, I actually did write, I wrote down on it in a notebook, like the overall arc I was looking for. And then I went back and plugged in the best moments that correlated to that arc. And then I got it down to like two, three hours of like selects of like really good moments. And then I, and then I put them, like I tried to like patch them together where they made sense and then showed that to logic. And then he was like, Oh, but what about this? What about that? What about that? And I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that's right. You probably should put that in there. And then I tried to make those moments make sense in correlation with everything else. So it was, I don't think it was the most efficient way to do it, but it, it turned out really great. But like it, it, it was not certainly not a straight line from A to B. <laughs> I was going to say it's probably almost impossible to have that straight line because like you were saying, you're used to making these smaller clips where oh, people yeah. are like, all right, you got to get this to me by tomorrow morning or else you're fired or exactly. something like that. And exactly. you're, so you're used to thinking about getting everything done in this small period of time. And now you have this monster that you just have to chip away at day by day and maybe not see any large long-term progress in the moment but then you look back on it you know 30 days 45 days later and you see it all start to come together so i imagine that was a huge learning experience in terms of finding your workflow and, and finding your your process and mindset for a long-term film like that yeah i'm that's why i'm particularly excited about the next long-form project to take on because of how much i learned from it and how differently i would do it this time around in terms of orienting organization and i would probably even delegate a lot more and like bring other people in to help me obviously um you know we we did it with a very small team it was mostly just mike holland and myself and logic working on um, finalizing the documentary but it was a incredible learning experience and very fulfilling because imagine you know the amplitude of the fulfillment it, it goes up just like the length you know it's like all that all that work it, it pays off way. The more you give, the more you get. So in whittling down that huge mountain of footage you have, you know, there's a lot of editing decisions you need to make and cuts. And how involved is Logic in that process? How involved do you want him to be? Are there times that you guys disagree on what needs to be put in or what needs to be taken out? And what's that relationship like in terms of who has the final say of this is going in or this is not? Oh, no, like this project was Logic's he was the executive producer in the truest sense. As much hard work as Mike and I put into it, he was the executive producer. So while we were doing, you know, the majority of the gritty work in terms of shooting, editing, he was really the decision maker when it came down to it. You know, I would spend like all day editing, then he'd come through and see what I what I had gotten, and then he would give a few notes, and then I would spend, you know, half a day addressing those notes, run it by him again. It was sort of that kind of thing. But he, he really is. It, this was his his baby, you know, and that's different than like a, a documentary that's like made by like a third party, you know, where where they get to put the lens on something and then you know sh- you know give their voice to it. This was more of like an in house self portrait documentary for him, you know. Like I I want to put this out here, you know. So that's a different approach, but um, it was something I was I was incredibly honored to be a part of. So 
I know you're a huge Anuraj fan, more specifically Ari Gold. Oh, yeah. I have a quote here from Ari Gold. <laughs> and uh, he says, I think this is late, later on. I, I forget what scene this actually applies to, but he says, he's talking to the Lloyd. And he says, there are no asterisks in life, only scoreboards. And right now, ours is reading fuck. <laughs> are there any moments during the filming of that documentary or since you've been on Logic's team where you had that feeling of like, all right, we're kind of fucked right now. I don't know how we're yeah. going to get out of it, but we're going to. And I just need to figure it out. Are there any things that stick out where you kind of embody that mindset of, already gold at the time yes there was a time and let me tell you that there was no way way out it was just an absolute l it was just a fucked on the scoreboard and that was when basically i was filming for a different project i can't tell you what it was yet but like i'm filming and it was like this moment where someone was there visiting logic on the bus and they were together and this was like the one moment they were going to be together and I'm recording them and they're, they're saying all this brilliant stuff and it's like the best content you could ever imagine. And then I go back to review the clip and the mic was plugged in, but like the cord had like been damaged to the point where it didn't record the audio. Yeah. So I'm talking about like not something we could recreate, just a moment lost. And that is anyone who knows me knows that that is my biggest nightmare missing a moment and this isn't like a movie set where you can just take like you know get another take that that moment is lost my my stomach hurts right now talking about it that was an l that was a fucked on the scoreboard no asterisks just fucked simply purely fucked now is there a light at the end of the tunnel i still work for him you know it, you know we've got past it but it's just like that that shit hurts that shit hurts. I mean, especially coming from the podcasting world, I couldn't imagine if I, you know, having a conversation like right now and I look up and I'm like, oh, fuck, we haven't been recording for the last hour and a half. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. don't speak too yeah, It's like yeah. terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, I, I won't speak till soon. Yeah. We'll wait till we go through the audio. <laughs> but the red light's on right now, so I think we're good. But uh, I can't imagine it's a how shitty that must be on the moment. And then having to break the news to, to be like, you know, that conversation you had, that was like one of the best things ever. Like, I, we didn't get that. Sorry. If you could be on a global broadcast and get out a, a short five second message to people, like you, you could appear on their uh, cell phone or TV screen, or if they're listening to something, your voice appears in their head and you could get out this quick little message to the entire world. What would you want to tell people? Okay. It could have to do with Man. music. It could have to do with just a personal yeah. message. How long? How long? How you long have five seconds. Five seconds. Well, you, you have five oh, seconds man. to say. Well, that's the five seconds. Five seconds. The, like the message can can be five. You can have seconds one of five seconds. Ten seconds long. You have five seconds to think. You have as as long as you need to think about it. But the message. <laughs> yeah, but but even okay, okay. Condensing the message down to five seconds, mm -hmm. I would say, and this. Damn, this is something I heard from someone else. That's corny shit. But I went to a Jay-Z concert. I'm going to give a little disclaimer, right? I went to a Jay-Z concert. Yeah, you can give a lead up. You can give a lead up. Okay, so I want this is just for you guys. This isn't for my worldwide broadcast, all right? This is just for, for you guys to know. I went to a Jay-Z concert at the Barclays, and he said 
everybody has like a genius level of talent in something. And like when you figure that out, like go for that 100%. And everyone has different aptitudes and skill sets. But when you figure that out, go for that. And along the way, be a good person and work harder than everyone else. That's, no, that's about five seconds. Yeah, that works. <laughs> okay, but, but, but that, no, no, because I don't know what was the lead up. And I, okay, so the lead up was this was at a Jay Z concert, and he said this. And what I'm adding to it is be a good person and work harder than everyone else. So, do you want me to like re- rephrase it all <laughs> so that it's, it's in five seconds? I don't know if you're going to be like montaging all these later. I don't want to be the one guy with the with the scrambled message. No, you, you can you can present it however you want. We had no plans. To okay, do let's start fresh. Maybe it's a good oh, idea you, for us. We could no, we you could gotta do, like do that. You gotta do that. for every guest. Yeah, go yeah. Back. yeah. All right, so check it out though. Let's start from scratch. You know the context, but this mm-hmm. is for the world. You ready? You ready? You say go. Go go. You have genius level of talent in something. Figure that out. Work harder than everyone else to show what that is. And be a good person along the way. Perfect. That is a great spot to end off. Yeah, be a good person, man. Do the and we know we you know what the right thing is to do. Just do it. That's bottom line. You know what I mean? Like, do the right thing. You seen the Spike Lee movie? It's powerful, Mm -hmm. incredible Mm -hmm. movie. Do the right thing. It's is is a basic ass principle. Just do the right thing. Thank you for listening to this episode with Justin Fleischer. You can follow Justin on Twitter and Instagram to keep up with his latest projects and check out the Everybody documentary with Logic with the links in the description of this podcast. And if you love this podcast, we would love if you could rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening. This helps us get more hard-to-reach listeners and do bigger and better things, which means that we can keep bringing the best conversations to you. And we love what we do. Until next time.